The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Why don't we uh, begin with prayer and ask God to bless our time. Father, I thank you that we can uh, bow before you now and know that you hear us in Christ. As we have studied on Wednesday evenings, you are a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. We are also mindful of the fact that apart from you, we can do nothing. I'm mindful of my own weakness and of the eminent possibility that the time we spend here tonight will be wasted if you don't send your Holy Spirit, if you don't open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. And even if uh, we do see wonderful things in your law, if you don't send forth your Spirit to enable us to keep and obey those things and to make changes in our lives, O oh Lord, it will all be for naught. So I pray then that you would send forth your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can bring anything to you in prayer. I pray now for this prayer request that was just handed to me of this young man, J.D. Loftus, who's a student at Southeastern and who has a, an undetermined autoimmune disease. We just pray for healing for him. We ask for your mercy. And Father, many, I'm sure, have come in through these doors tonight with unspoken needs, with a need for your ministry, a need for you to come alongside them and care for them. I pray that you would continue to work healing, strengthen our commitment to you, help us to be fruitful. And now for this time, Lord, we pray that you would help us to know your word and to grow in our prayer lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I notice that Jack Evans isn't here. I was going to ask him to turn his cell phone off if he is, but um, uh, I didn't get a chance to finish uh, to finish the uh, specific promises of God conducive to prayer, and so I want to begin with that. Basically, the unifying theme of our study tonight uh, really comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for. And so we have through the Holy Spirit and through the Scriptures, uh, an answer to that question, Lord, what should I pray for? I don't know what to pray for. And so uh, we made that point last time, and what I'd like to do is take you through some of the promises of God that I think are very conducive to prayer. So those will be the last two pages of the outline that I handed to you. This is from last week. We didn't get to cover it. Then I'm going to go from there to a study of Paul's prayer life. And uh, a very good book on that whole topic is this book by Don Carson. A Call to Spiritual Reformation, uh, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. I know some of the home fellowship, uh, home fellowship uh, groups have studied this book, and I think it's an ex excellent approach. And uh, Don Carson, excellent writer. Um, but we're going to spend some time tonight looking at what the Apostle Paul prayed for and to try to understand his mentality and his approach in prayer. Uh, you know, it says in the book of James, we do not have because we do not ask God. When we ask, we do not receive because we ask with wrong motives that we may spend what we get on our pleasures. And so there's some problems in our prayer life, uh, but it, in that particular case, it stems from the fact that we're asking for the wrong things or for the right things for the wrong reasons. Our motives aren't right. And so we just need help, don't we? We need help in our prayer lives. We need to pray more. We need to pray better. We need to pray more biblically informed. And uh, these promises of God on the last two pages of your handout and also the Apostle Paul's prayers are going to be, I think, a good way for us to reorient our own priorities in prayer. Again, I, I believe there's no, nothing too small or too insignificant to bring to God in prayer. Uh, we insult uh, His omnipotence when we say that God is so busy, so mighty, uh, spinning the planets and looking after the universe that he can't be bothered with the little details of our lives. Well, God can do all of that and all the details of your life and a million other things are immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. There's no lack of the power of God. He is intimately concerned with the details of our lives. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't reorient our priorities in prayer that we shouldn't reorient our priorities, that we shouldn't give more priority in prayer to those great things that God has entrusted to us in prayer. Uh, and I think we should. 
And so therefore, I think it's beneficial for churches when they gather together uh, for times of corporate prayer to give special attention to spiritual priorities. The, the general work of the gospel and the spiritual transformation, the spiritual reformation that's going on in people's lives or should be going on or will, will be going on as a result of the gospel. We should focus primarily on that without neglecting prayer for medical issues or other type of temporal needs. I think we can pray for all of those things. I'm just talking about a priority structure. So that's going to be what we'll talk about tonight, and the Apostle Paul will be our guide. But let's look at uh, the holdover from last time, and that is a very clear sense of information about what we should pray for are the promises of God. What God has said he intends to do, he will do. And we know that he will do it, even apart from our own uh, prayer, uh, I don't say that he would do things apart from anybody's prayer. There are some things probably he won't do unless someone prays for them. But we believe that God will sovereignly move someone to pray. Think about what Queen Esther was, was uh, told by her, her uh, uncle, uh, or cousin, sorry, um, Mordecai. If you don't uh, act at this time, God will raise up help from another place. All right? <laughs> We're not going to be exterminated. But, you know, you actually will die. <laughs> you know, the implication is if you don't do it, God might wipe you out and everybody else will survive. So uh, there's a real threat. What a, what a message. But the, the fact is we are not indispensable. All right. However, for all of that, the promises of God are things that God has said he will do. And we should pray for them. Now, you could ask, why should I pray for something God has said he's going to do? Like, I wonder if anybody prayed that the sun would come up today. You know, maybe someone did. I don't know. I personally have never prayed for that. Um, you know, God has said, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, day and night will never cease. So there's a promise of God. We can pray for that. But I'm not advocating that. Praying for rain, now that's a different matter. Okay, see, that's something. We can definitely be praying for rain. We can do, of course, you remember how we talked last time about what Mueller said, and that is the gift of, uh, gift of faith or the grace of faith. You remember the distinction between those two things. Has God promised that he would send rain today or in this specific situation? No. But if you could trust God for it, then that would be the gift of faith. Very good point. All right, so let's look at some of these and, um, and get going on that, and then we'll take it from there. First, a promise that we can uh, be praying back to God is that God would glorify his name. Where is that promise found? Uh, uh, God the Father spoke it to God the Son um, uh, during the time of his days on earth in ministry. You remember how Jesus was saying, and now what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Then he cries out, Father, glorify your name. And the Father answers him saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Well, there's the promise. God will glorify his name. And we can find multiple verses that would teach the same kind of thing. Should we pray then that God's name would be glorified? I think we should. Why would it be beneficial for us to be praying that God would glorify his name? Do you think we should pray something like that? Well, did Jesus pray anything like that? Well, you heard me a second ago. He just did, right? He said, Father, glorify your name. So that is something Jesus prayed. Why would it be beneficial for us to pray that God's name would be glorified? Yes. Well, if we do that, then perhaps we'll be more um, cognizant of ways that we can bring that to pass. Yeah. Or help to bring it to pass. So it can't affect our own hearts to pray that. Okay. Keep in mind uh, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. There's not much difference between, Father, glorify your name and may your name be held in honor and respect or set apart as sacred, something like that. Any other thoughts on why it's beneficial for us as the church to pray that God's name would be glorified? Yes, well, Susan. I think there's self-interest generally if God's program is being advanced mm -hmm. on faith. I, I say that it's always better. Amen. Amen. All right. Second is for God to make Jesus' enemies a footstool under his feet. Uh, God said that he would do that. The Lord said to my, says to my uh, Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Um, you may say, well, what does that mean for God to make uh, Jesus' enemies a footstool? Well, it just, it just has to do with, uh, you know, very much like in Psalm 2, uh, where the psalmist there gives a little bit of counsel to the kings of the earth to be wise and not oppose or fight against the sun. So that's uh, basically giving advice, don't fight Jesus. All right, but here in Psalm 110, there's an indication that God the Father is putting his power behind the exaltation of Christ. 
And so he will make Jesus' enemies a footstool for uh, his feet. We can pray that very thing. Now, you could, you could pray either way. You could pray that they would be converted or you could pray that they'd be removed. In any case, this is something God has said he's going to do. All right? Thirdly, and by the way, just imagine the universe in which all of Jesus' enemies are dealt with. They're dealt with. They're gone. They're out of the picture. What would you call that? They're, they're just removed. They're not even there. Huh? That's called heaven. Right. So you're praying your kingdom come. You know, you're saying, God, remove your enemies. Please. As he said, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Father, do it. Pull up those plants by the roots. And he knows very well who the wheat and the tares are. We don't know. He knows. And he knows in his good time he will deal with it. What you're praying for is, Lord, I am looking forward to the day when there will be on this earth no wicked people. There will, and there are many psalms that say the same thing. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, this kind of thing. You say, is this something the Christian should pray? Well, yes, but I just would uh, refrain from applying it to specific people by name. Oh, that you would slay that wicked person there. I think if you're going to talk about specific individuals, pray for their conversion. This is the day of grace, isn't it? Now is the time of salvation. Let's pray. God can do amazing things. If he converted Nebuchadnezzar, which I think he did, and I hope he did, uh, he can do anything. All right, but in general, Oh, Lord, finish your work here in this world and weed out of this kingdom everything that causes sin and all those who do evil. Weed them out, Lord. Thirdly, for the elect to be saved, for God to save his elect. Uh, who are the elect? Well, it says in Ephesians 1 that God chose them before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Those who are chosen by name before the creation of the world, they are the elect. Well, uh, Paul says in Titus 1, 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that uh, leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised beforehand. All right, before time. And so, basically, you know, he, he's saying, I am an apostle for the faith of God's elect. What does the word for mean there? Okay, in the service of. Right, his apostleship is to bring about the faith of the elect. That's why he's there. Well, then you could say, so also would his prayers. He says in 2 Timothy, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation with eternal uh, uh, joy, uh, glory. Sorry. So he endures everything for the sake of the, of the elect. The word endure makes us immediately think, of course, of the suffering that Paul went through, the Philippian jail, that kind of thing. He says, I go through all kinds of hardships and troubles so that the elect may be saved. But he also would endure an hour on his knees in prayer for them too. He would pray for them. Uh, and we can talk more about that as he says in Romans. Uh, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer uh, for the Jews is that they may be saved. So he endures a prayer time at least for the elect. All right? We should pray for the elect to be saved. All right? Uh, fourthly, we should pray for the gospel to advance among unreached people groups. All right? Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached... In the whole world is a testimony uh, to all nations, and then the end will come. So what promise is Jesus making here? Okay, yeah, second half is that the end will come, so there will be an end. And we'll talk about that even at the end of this little section here. But what else? The gospel will be preached. That's a promise. You could also say it's a prediction. But in any case, it's a promise. And, and we know because he's the one who sends out the preachers, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. He is the one who sent them out as the Father sent me. Sent me. Even so, I am sending you. So it's not just a prediction. Jesus says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to send them out. So he is predicting that the gospel will be preached to every unreached people group. All of them are going to hear. All right, so we should pray what? There's the promise. What should we pray? Christian, what should we pray based on Matthew 24, 14? Okay. Could you take that and apply it to specific unreached people groups? Yeah. Yeah. Say, Lord, you promised that the gospel is going to be preached in the whole world as testimony to all nations. So, you know, I pray that this particular unreached people group would hear the gospel. Yes, sir. Yes, that's uh, N. And we'll get to it. But I just, I love the way you think. I just love the way you think. I do. So, yes, that's N. So we'll get to that. But uh, yes, that, that the Lord will come back. 
Maybe even before I finish tonight. Matthew, in that case, you won't get to make your announcement. Is that all right? Of course, there won't be a Durham mission trip at that point. It's all over. <laughs> finished. All right, we'll get to that. All right. Yeah. Lord, go back. I didn't, we didn't get to do the Durham mission trip, you know? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. He'll come when he comes. All right. Fifthly, for sanctification to proceed among the believers. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it along on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a promise. Again, many doctrines teach this. This is probably the clearest in the promise form. But he has promised that he, that he who began a good work, he will carry it on to completion. So we should say, O oh Lord, you know, and you can apply it to, you know, people in your home fellowship. You can apply it to people in your family that are saved. You can apply it to people here at First Baptist Church. Apply it to your pastor, your elders. Apply it, apply it to people you know. You know, that, that God, this beginning work of salvation you've done, carry it on to completion. Finish it right through to the end. May they be glorified. May they have no sin nature and, and may they be resurrected in, in the resurrection glory of Jesus. You know, that's what the, the future holds. That's he who began a good work. That's what he's doing right through to the end. Pray for it to be finished. Uh, pray for daily physical needs to be met. Okay? Matthew uh, 6.33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And then Philippians 4.19. My God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. These are promises. You can therefore pray for them. You can pray that physical needs would be met. Daily physical needs will be met. Give us today our daily bread is, is the exact prayer request based on these promises. So there in the Lord's Prayer, it's the actual prayer request. But here are the promises. He has promised to meet your, meet your needs, to care for your needs. And again, as we mentioned last week and I think maybe before, that's needs, okay? What does that mean, needs? Things we must have in order to, to survive, all right? Yeah, that would not include, well, you know it doesn't include, so yes. Absolutely, and absolutely. Maybe death, I suppose. And, uh, mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, yeah. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. You know something? I think the Christians that die of starvation will testify that he did that. Yeah. He did it and did it and did it and did it. Now it's time for them to die. Also, we should recognize that, frankly, overall, worldwide, Christian or non-Christian, the number of people that die of starvation is a vanishingly small percentage of people. It's still a large number quantity-wise, but the fact of the matter is, everyone who dies of starvation does so, in my opinion, directly because of human sin. Usually governments or states that use food as a weapon in some kind of civil war situation. There is plenty of food on this planet. So God does meet the needs. At any rate, these are good points to make, and it's also good for us to keep remembering that we live as Americans at a very, very high level. And we're not talking about that level of lifestyle. We're talking about needs, the basic needs of life. Yes? Wasn't this promise made, though, to people that had given to others? And because they had been generous, God was going to meet their needs. Does this apply to everybody? Philippians 4.19. Well, there are conditions in Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You know, the psalm, psalmist said, I've, I was old, young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous begging bread. So there, you know, there are definitely issues there uh, that he takes care of his own. Yeah, so I think Philippians 4.19, definitely it's, you know, you've been faithful, God will meet all of your needs, etc. Okay. All right, next, uh, for the persecuted among God's people to receive justice, Luke 18. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Again, for us Americans, this is not as big an issue. But for the persecuted church, it is. I mean, there's an awful lot of really, you know, horrible things that happen uh, you know, in, in some of these countries, some of the re- repressive regimes that crack down on Christianity, they cry out for justice. And, you know, also those that actually die, uh, martyrs that go up to, uh, up to heaven, they cry out from under the altar saying, how long will it be until vengeance comes on those that shed our blood? And they're told to wait 
a little while longer until the full number of martyrs comes in. But at any rate, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Of course, we're going to see uh, at the end an N uh, that quickly means something different to God than it does to us. But he will definitely see that they get justice. Isn't it interesting, though, justice could be in pouring out his wrath on his own son? I mean, didn't, didn't Saul of Tarsus' victims get justice through Jesus? I mean, that's the justice, is basically the wrath that Saul deserved was poured out on his own son. Quite remarkable. There's no end to the thinking we can do all that. How about protection from Satan's attacks? Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, a condition. All right, but we could pray that the devil will flee from us. And frankly, I think we can go beyond that. Say, pray, Lord, that I will resist the devil. You know, Lord, give me the strength to resist. I've said before, the commands that God gives you are also uh, grounds for prayer. You know, whatever God commands you, you know, that's what he wants you to do. So, Lord, work this in me. Make me one who resists the devil. At any rate, make him flee. All right? For a filtering of our temptations and a way of escape during temptation. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. All right? Lots of promise in there. Basically what he's saying is he's promising to filter your temptations. What do I mean by that? Filter your temptations. What does that mean? It has to pass by his sovereign throne first. It can't, he, uh, Satan can't bypass God. He's got to go through, through the, the sovereign, you know, the providence of God. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. So you can pray, pray that. Say, Lord, please, don't let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. Or again, simply as in the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation but deliver me from the evil one. So those are that kind of thing. You can see how Jesus gives you the, the, the actual prayers to pray, but here are the promises. Lord, filter my temptations. How would that help you, by the way, to pray that? Pray it every day. Lord, I pray that today you'd filter my temptations and don't allow anything to me except what I can handle. And when the temptation comes, Lord, please provide me a way of escape so I can run. Uh, what? So when it does come, you having prayed that even that day, you are more keenly aware that you are able to bear up under this. You don't have to yield. That's very, yeah, that's very good. All right, next, for a powerful sense of God's presence, pray that God would give you a sense that he is there. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Well, that's a kind of geographical language or experiential language. Basically, what God is saying is he will give you a livelier sense of his presence in your life. So that's a promise. Again, conditional. Come near to God and he will come near to you. You could say, oh, Lord, come near to me then. And frankly, in that particular case, even in praying it, you fulfilled the, uh, you have fulfilled uh, the condition. You have come near to God. You are asking him to come near to you and he will. So there's a promise you can pray. And again, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So would it be of any benefit to pray to God? Oh, Lord, I pray that you wouldn't leave me or forsake me. Why would that be a benefit to pray? God, I pray that you will not leave me or forsake me. Sometimes I feel rather thankless praying that. Mm -hmm. I mean, but rather thanking him. That, mm -hmm. <coughs> but maybe I should be praying, never leave me. But mm -hmm. I feel rather thankless. When I yeah, there's nothing wrong with uh, changing it. Susan, I think, is hinting that we could say instead, Lord, thank you that you will not leave me or forsake me. I don't think the Lord would be insulted in any case. Uh, in, insulted in any, really, let's realize, apart from his promises to us and commitment to us in Christ, he could leave us any time. I mean, he, didn't, he leave, didn't he leave King Saul? Didn't he abandon him? Didn't David say, take not your Holy Spirit from me? It's just that he's promised that he would never take his Holy Spirit from us in Christ. So, yeah, Peggy? I think that if we repeat his promises to us, then it strengthens our faith. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah, faith comes, faith just feeds on it, gets strength from the Word of God. So as often as you can just imbibe these promises and pray them back to God, your own faith is getting stronger. Believe me, God knows His promises. <laughs> it's not forgotten what He has promised. But we forget them. We forget them so often. We forget what God has promised us. All right, for a renewal of strength for God's people. All right, Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear 
for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Okay, next week, I'm going to talk, uh, God willing, about uh, power through prayer. And I've done a lot of meditating on this. Um, and I just, I just think it's really quite remarkable how God strengthens us by faith through prayer. How God strengthens us. And that's something we talk about all the time. Well, Lord, strengthen. Well, what does that mean, strengthen us? And I've thought about it. I was thinking about it specifically in terms of, uh, forget it, next week. I'm not going to, I do that all the time. And I'm not going to do it. We'll do it next week. God gives strength. So we could pray for that. Lord, strengthen so-and-so. And I actually think you probably pray that kind of thing a lot. So-and-so is going through a hard time. They're going through a trial right now. Give them strength. Give them strength. Strengthen them, O oh Lord. You know, somebody's going through some sickness. You're asking to strengthen them. What does that mean? What are you praying for? Strengthen them, O oh Lord, during this affliction, during this time. Strengthen their faith. Help them not to waver. Just like, you know, Jesus said to Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You can pray that kind of thing, that God would strengthen their faith and it won't fail. We'll talk, I think, God willing, more about that next time. Uh, for the peace of God to control our minds, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's the promise. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can pray that for yourself. Pray that for a loved one. Pray that for somebody going through a trial. Say, oh, Lord, I pray that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Beautiful. Definitely pray that. For forgiveness of specific sins. You know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, and, and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Again, a condition if we confess our sins. But then here are the promises. He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us. So you could say, Lord, please forgive my sin. Or you could say, Lord, I pray, pray that you forgive so-and-so's sin. Forgive them and uh, strengthen them as they walk with you. Again, very important kind of prayer. And then, uh, finally, for Christ to return soon, okay? N, right? We got there eventually. But, yeah, Jesus, come back. And, again, I showed you how that's the, probably the plainest example of a promise and then a request based on the promise. And that's, uh, you know, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And John responds, amen, come, Lord Jesus. So he says he's coming soon, and so we can pray uh, multiple times that Jesus would come back. Any questions? These are just, this is just a sampling I mean, you can go through and find dozens and dozens of other promises you can pray. Yes? Sometimes uh, when thoughts that I don't want to have bombard my mind, what's, does something come to your mind that I might pray? I mean, or is it that I'm in my Yeah, it's an issue. I think, don't we all struggle with that? You're in prayer and your mind is distracted and, and we and our thoughts wander. And I just think that God has given Scripture really to help with that. Adrian, what are you going to say? Yeah, I, I get thoughts like that now. I use that verse. I pray the prayer like um, Satan, I rebuke in the name of the Lord God for all the victory of Calvary and for all the Calvary means. For it is written, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are holy, whatsoever things are just, and if a good report comes on these things. Right. And I bind you in the name of Jesus. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Philippians 4 and verse 8 that you just quoted there. Uh, but again, it's the scripture. I think this is the big difference between Christian meditation and Eastern mystic meditation, which is a, just an emptying of the mind so that you're, frankly, vulnerable to all kinds of demonic influences. I think Christian meditation fills the mind, generally, I think, best with the word of God. And frankly, I think you should fill your mind only with the Word of God or what comes from the Word of God. You know, meditations on the Word of God. So that's why George Mueller recommends that you always start your quiet time with the Bible and not with prayer. And this is a man that prayed. I mean, he prayed more than any of us ever will. But he said, no, I start with, I start with the Scripture. I fill myself up with that. And then based on that, then I start praying. And the prayers just flow from the Scripture. So, but it's a fight. I mean, I'm not saying that any of us will master it. We, we are weak. We, and again, I'm going to meditate on that with you, God willing, next week, the whole weakness and strength issue. We're just so weak, and we need help. The Spirit strengthens us in our weakness, and we need that kind of help. All right, let's look at um, Paul's prayer life. Uh, this is a quote from the beginning of Don Carson's book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. What is the most urgent need in the, of the church in the church of the Western world today? Summarizing, is it sexual purity? Is it a strong stand on abortion? Is it integrity and generosity and finances? 
Uh, freedom from greed, materialism, and self-indulgence? Is it evangelism and church planning? How about disciplined biblical thinking and right doctrine? Clearly, all these things are important. I would not want anything I have said to be taken as a disparagement of evangelism and worship, a diminishment of the importance of purity and integrity, a carelessness about disciplined Bible study. But there is a sense in which these urgent needs are symptomatic of a far more serious lack. The one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to, we need to know God better. When it comes to knowing God, we are a cultural culture of the spiritually stunted. So much of our religion is packaged to address our felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of our own happiness and fulfillment. God simply becomes the great being who, potentially at least, meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations. We think rather little of what he is like, what he expects of us, what he seeks in us. We are not captured by his holiness and love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. That's from Don Carson's A Call to Spiritual Reformation Priorities from Paul in his prayers. So what we're going to do here, I think I'm hoping to, is reorient our priorities in prayer. And we're going to use the Apostle Paul's prayer life as revealed in his epistles and in the book of Acts, uh, prayer in the life of Paul to try to do that. Okay, so let's start uh, with the beginning of Paul's prayer life. All right. I'm not saying Paul didn't pray as an unconverted Jew. I think he did pray a lot as an unconverted Jew. But can we just start with uh, his experience after the road to Damascus? We'll just start his Christian prayer life, shall we? We'll start it there. All right, when did it start? Remember what happened? He was struck blind. Glory of the resurrected Christ toned down some because God dwells in unapproachable light. So toned down, but still enough to blind him. Uh, you know, appeared to him. And he is in the house of Judas on Straight Street. says... And he is praying. So there it is. And it's interesting. You know, this is uh, what the Lord says to Ananias, who doesn't want to go baptize him. You remember that? Go lay hands on him and heal him and baptize him. It's like, send someone else, Lord. You know, I've heard about this man. I don't want to get arrested and killed, you know. But uh, this is the Lord's answer. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Why does he say, for he is praying? Jesus tells, tells Ananias this, for he is praying. Okay? Yeah, it's a clue. It's evidence. How about this from Chronicles? Do you see how Manasseh has humbled himself? Do you see that? Do you see how he humbled himself? God looks to see what you do. He's saying, oh, this isn't just some experience. That, you know, he's not still wrestling. He's not still kicking against the goads. What's he doing now? He's praying. And I would have to say, probably praying in the name of Jesus. Who are you, Lord? That's the first one. <laughs> that was the first Christian prayer. Who are you, Lord? You know, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. That's the first one, right? From then on, he's praying in Jesus' name. He is praying. So that's the start of his uh, prayer life. Yeah. Sure. I think it's all of that. It's evidence that he's converted. It's evidence that God is faithful to him and to uh, heal him from his blindness. Maybe he's praying that he could see again. You know, maybe he's praying for other things. Uh, I think we know from Paul's writings in Galatians and all that that God, uh, from the very beginning, was starting to confirm his calling as apostle to the Gentiles. So there's lots of information going on uh, through the Holy Spirit, all kinds of things going on. All right, Paul's missionary call also coming through prayer. In Acts 13, 1 through 3, it says, In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So Paul's, uh, I, I, I want to say, I just hinted at it. I could have done a little more work on that, but just, um, you know, God uh, called Paul to be apostle of the Gentiles. He records this in Galatians 1 and talks about this in a trip to Arabia and all kinds of other things that happened before this Acts 13 experience. But uh, I think all of that intrinsic to that was Paul's prayer life. And Paul was praying directly to God. God revealed the gospel directly to him. All of those things were true. But here, just in the context of a church prayer meeting, 
he gets his call to go out on his first missionary journey with uh, with Barnabas, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So again, you see the role of prayer in Paul's clarification of his call. Also, we see Paul's uh, missionary pa- uh, passion, and that's evangelism undergirded by prayer. Listen to this, Acts 26, 28 through 28 and 29. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, (laughs) I don't care about the time frame, Short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Now, is that a throwaway expression? I pray God that you'll become Christians. I think not. I think he actually probably had prayed for Agrippa that he would become a Christian. It could be that he's praying right there and then. That is the prayer. I pray God that. And then he's, even though he's answering Agrippa, he's praying to God for the conversion of uh, his hearers. Or again, Romans 10.1, as we just quoted a moment ago. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Some that I think overemphasize the sovereignty of God and salvation. Actually, I don't think you can overemphasize it, but I do think you can speak of it wrongly and, and understand it and frankly, in this case, apply it wrongly. Say we shouldn't be praying for lost people because we don't know whether they're elect or not. Well, it is true that we don't know whether they're elect or not, but whatever you think, Paul's clearly praying for people who aren't converted yet. Clearly, he's doing it. So however you work all that out, friends, we will not be able to work it all out. Keep working on it. I think you ought to. Uh, But we will not be able to work it all out. What you ought to say is, God, I pray for so-and-so that they might be, that he or she might be saved. I have lost relatives, people that are very near and dear to me. I pray for them daily that they would be saved. I don't know whether they're elect or not. All indications right now is that they're not. You know? We won't have any earthly indications until they repent and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. But I pray for them. And I think we are encouraged by these verses to pray for the lost that they might be saved. And again, Second Thessalonians 3.1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. We've talked about this before, but again, just touched lightly. And be honored is in the passive voice. Pray that the message might be honored. What it means is, oh God, do something in their hearts. Those lost people, those unregenerate people, do something in their hearts that they would honor the gospel message and be saved. Okay, so Paul's missionary passion is to pray, uh, undergird his evangelism through uh, prayer. All right, Paul's missionary strategy is to organize the church through prayer. All right, Acts 14.23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Okay, so here they are, very similar to what happened in Acts 13 when they're sent out with prayer and fasting. So now they're appointing elders and they're setting up these little churches that they planted, again, with prayer and fasting. And uh, I don't know who the, the they is when it says in whom they had put their trust. It, it really is one of those unanswerable questions. I guess I'd have to look at the Greek, but it really doesn't matter to me at all. It could be Paul and Barnabas or it could be the new believers doesn't matter because they're all they all had put their trust in God but actually fits better if it's Paul and Barnabas in effect they said and it's saying we're about to leave now we're going we're going bye-bye it's just you and the world and the devil and the flesh all right we entrust you to God who started this good work in you doesn't doesn't Paul give indication in second Corinthians how he is constantly anxious about the churches he planted even though he did say that we shouldn't be anxious about anything, yet he is constantly concerned. Remember how he said, who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? Or he's very anxious about the Thessalonian church that's going through persecution and how relieved he is when he finds out from from, uh, Timothy that all is well with the Thessalonian church. And so he finds out a good report about them and he says, oh, how can we thank God enough for you? in return for all the joy we have. But anyway, that's a big moment. You've led these, these people to Christ, they're this tiny little green shoot with a little, little root system, and you're going to go leave now and go to some other community that hasn't heard of Jesus yet. And so he entrusts them to God with fasting and prayer. God protect them and keep them safe. Very similar, I think, to Jesus' high priestly prayer. I am leaving them and I'm going now. Father, protect them and keep them safe. All right, so that's his strategy. His missionary comfort is strength through prayer. All right? By the way, I mean, we should keep in mind that the Apostle Paul was not some ministry robot, some senseless, unfeeling chunk of steel 
that you could bash on. I guess in one sense, you know, God told Jeremiah, I'll make your forehead like iron, all right? And, and they, you know, they'll bash on you and you'll just give it right back. I mean, you're not going to yield at all. Well, that's true, but they're still human beings. I mean, doesn't Jeremiah give some sense of the cost to him emotionally, how tough that ministry was? Ezekiel too, very tough to carry on that ministry. Well, if you, if you know what to look for, you see it in Paul too. It wasn't easy for him to do this. It wasn't easy for him to be hated. It wasn't easy for him to be rejected by his own people, to, be, to, to start riots. How would you like to be the, the cause of a riot? I mean, and, and the focus of the riot is we'd like to kill this person. We can only lay hands on him. Where is he? You know, that's a terrible thing. So it says in Acts 16, 22 through 25, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And all the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I think it's right to consider... Yes, Horace, I'm sorry, go ahead. What I like about this, when they started the singing and praying like they were, the, the jail shut and the chains fell off of them and, and mm. the doors opened and Amen. they were set free. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't yes, that marvelous? That may be one of the sweetest prayer times God has ever received. I mean, you stop and think about it. In, in Genesis 8, Noah's, Noah's sacrifice of the clean animals goes up and it was a pleasing aroma to God. All right? Because you have to look at it. You know, I mean, Noah could have a sense of ownership of those animals that were on the ark and he's just burned some of them and they're the only ones there are. They were extra clean animals. But talk about a sacrifice. And it was pleasing to God. I think this prayer time by Paul and Silas after being beaten was pleasing to God. Clearly it was. But I think what I'm asking you to consider is, could it be at least in part that, that they prayed because they needed prayer too? They needed to pray? That that was a tough experience and they didn't even know if they were going to die the next day? They might, they might have been killed? And so they were ministering to themselves too. All right? If you don't think so, then just continue in Acts 18. Verse 9 through 11, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. And do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. What is going on there? What is the Lord doing for Paul there? Reassuring him. Strengthening him. Addressing his what? His fears. And what would he be afraid of? Well, he's going to get beat up again. I mean, who wants that? Who wants to get left for dead in a pile of rocks outside of yet another Greek city? You know, I mean, it's tough. And it's like, do I have to keep doing this? How much longer? Remember what it said to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Well, yeah, but you need to strengthen him or he's just going to give up. It's just very, very tough. And so the Lord gives him some special strength and, and shows himself and strengthens him so he keeps on going. Again, Acts 21 and verse 5. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. And all the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. So he is strengthened there as he says goodbye to some loved ones in prayer. There's another example too I didn't cite here, but uh, it's during the, ship, the shipwreck. You remember later in the book of Acts? And the apostle Paul says, Last night... An angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. As you have spoken about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. Again, that's the Lord doing the same thing, strengthening him, giving him courage in the midst of a terrible hurricane and uh, obvious, you know, a shipwreck. So the Lord strengthened Paul through prayer. All right? So I mean by his own prayer life. Uh, we'll get in a moment to the fact that he strengthened Paul through other people praying for him. But this is Paul praying, and he got strength through his own prayer life. All right? Now, Paul had a constant habit, and that was praying for God's people. All right? How many times do you see this in the epistles? I want you to know I'm praying for you without ceasing, constantly offering prayers for you. He says it over and over. Romans 1, 9 and 10. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. So he's telling the church at Rome. He's never seen him before. They, don't, they haven't met him. They don't know him personally. But he said, I want you to know, and God is my witness, I constantly pray for you. I pray for you day after day. 
That's what he's saying. Again, Philippians 1, 3 through 6. I thank my God every time I remember you. And all, all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Again, he says, I am constantly praying for you. I'm always praying for you. Colossians 1.9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Again, Paul, the example here of a constant prayer uh, life for these churches. And again, churches he planted and churches he didn't. He didn't plant the church at Rome. And he didn't plant the, the Colossian church either. He did plant the Philippian church and he did plant the Thessalonian church. It doesn't matter to him. It's a work of God. It's the work of Jesus Christ he's praying for. It. All right? Again, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus. So these are lots of churches he's praying for. Churches he planted and churches he didn't. And where did he get the time? Isn't it amazing? Yes, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's anxious about these churches and he prays. Yeah, I think he I think he spent a lot of time in prayer. I think so. But I also think we should realize that you're not heard because of your many words. I mean, it could be this is all he prayed, these words. I pray, you know, that you would be strengthened in all your in all your service to God or whatever. And whatever he writes, that's what he prayed. That's it. I mean, what did Jesus pray in front of Lazarus' tomb? I mean, very simple prayer. I mean, it's, it's not the words. It's that it's the who's praying and the will of God and, and all that. It's not how many things you can say. All right. And again, Second Thessalonians 1.11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. Okay. Paul also reveals in his, in his epistles his own need for prayer. He asks for prayer frequently. He, he, prays, he prays for him. He asks prayer for himself. All right. And I was convicted on this count, you know, uh, you know that I don't ask people to pray for me enough, you know, in details. And I need to do better about that. Uh, but the Apostle Paul wasn't shy to ask, you know, pray for me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to there. Pray for this. Pray that the door might be open for our message. You know, he's just praying for these kinds of things. Um, you know, First Thessalonians 5.25, it really can't be categorized. <laughs> so I just stuck it at the top. Brothers, pray for us. Okay, <laughs> Whatever comes to mind, just something. Just pray for us. All right, that's enough. You know what to do. Um, so that's just an uncategorizable request for prayer. All right. But then uh, opportunity for evangelism, Second Thessalonians 3.1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. We already covered that. So he just he's praying for evangelistic uh, fruit, really, and success. Secondly, he asked prayer for boldness and clarity in evangelism. Ephesians 6.19, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I'll fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Okay? So he's praying against his own fears, against his own weakness. You know, I'm weak. I'm just flesh and blood, just like you. You know, pray that I'd be strong and bold and clear in my proclamation of the gospel. Colossians 4, 3 and 4. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So you've got boldness in Ephesians 6 and clarity in Colossians 4. Okay? Protection and persecution. Uh, we've talked about this verse before, but it, there it is. Romans uh, 15, 30 and following. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. That's such an expression. Isn't that beautiful? Join me in my struggle. Struggle with me. Just like is it Epaphras who is always wrestling for that church in you know, the Colossian church? He's always wrestling for you, he says. Well, here, in effect, he's saying, please wrestle with me. Even though it's not happening to you, pray as though it were. Join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. Do you think God answered those prayers? Well, you remember when he went to Jerusalem to bring the gift that they, you know, the Macedonian churches and the other Greek churches, he brought it there. Uh, you remember what happened. That's when he was arrested. All right, but you remember the circumstances before his arrest. It was just grace from God and an answer to this prayer that he was even arrested. Do you know why? Well, they were trying to kill him. <laughs> They were actually in the process of it. 
All right, and it was it was it was the fact that the basic basically the Roman police came and saved his life that enabled him even to preach the message he did in Acts 22 and then go on eventually to Rome uh, as he did. And so this is an, this would be the an answer. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. There's the answer. We don't know that anyone ever prayed this, but this is what Paul requested. My guess is that the faithful Christians in Rome did pray for this. Lord, I pray that you would rescue Paul from the unbelievers in Judea. You know, uh, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. Oh, he did that, didn't he? Isn't that how he got to Rome? <laughs> he got rescued. He appealed to Caesar and went to Rome. So that's how it happened. Isn't that marvelous? Anyway, Second Thessalonians 3, 2. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. All right, so pray again for deliverance from evil attacks. And then Second Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So he's talking about an extreme trial so that they despaired even of, even of life itself. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. So in other words, instrumental in our ongoing deliverance is, is your prayer for us. Please pray for us. All right? Then many will give thanks on behalf, on our behalf for the gracious favor God has granted us in answers to the prayers of many. So in other words, God's going to get lots and lots of thanks when lots of people pray for this because it's going to happen. God's going to deliver us and rescue us. All right, well, really, that's a good stopping point. Next time we'll pick up, uh, you know, I'm going to get the, the outline together on, on, on strength through prayer, and we'll talk about that. Next time we'll talk about what actually Paul prays for for these churches. What we've done here is just shown how important prayer was in Paul's life and certain aspects of that. Next time I want to talk about what he actually prays for. Matthew has asked for a couple of minutes to talk about our, our Durham mission trip, so Matthew, this would be a good time for you to take it away. All right. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.